This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Patrick Prince, editor of Goldmine Magazine, the music collector's magazine since 1974, and welcome back to the Goldmine Podcast. This episode, we're going to have J.J. French, the guitarist of Twisted Sister. Now, J.J. writes a column for Goldmine because he's a, well, a Beatles fanatic, but he writes a column about the Beatles called Now We're 64, so Goldmine readers should be familiar with them, especially the Goldmine readers that are Beatles fans, but he has just come out with a book called Twist It Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. And it's uh, authored by J.J. and Steve Farber. So we're going to be talking to J.J. about this new book. There's a lot of, a wealth of information about how he formed Twisted Sister and his mindset then and his mindset now and he has a very good outlook on life, and he transfers this into conducting business for Twisted Sister now um, to, you know, basically carry on Twisted Sister's legacy, and he's done a damn fine job of it. So we'll talk to him. In the meantime, you could get the book in the store, in the Goldmine store, at shop.goldminemag.com. That's shop.goldminemag.com. It's a great book, and we'll be well. He'll tell you exactly why it's a great book after this message. Uh, so let's talk about the book, man. Okay. Well, how how did you first meet Steve Farber, and met, how did this relationship develop? I met Steve Farber in two thousand and. 11 at a social media um, event that my wife who was my girlfriend at the time was involved with as a speaker so i went just to, to escort her to watch her do her thing because she's always watching me do mine and steve farber was a guest speaker so i i so i thought he was interesting i thought wow i like this uh motivational speaking gig you know and I, he asked he asked if there was any questions and i raised my hand is he I have a question about uh, about the dysfunction in the workplace because the music industry is the most dysfunctional workplace in the world. And that led to a discussion where we, we had lunch the next day or, or breakfast, or whatever. And um, I, at that point, you know, we were doing the twisted documentary. So I was already in the mode of pitching and looking for things to do, like other projects to do. So uh, so Steve and I just started talking, we became friends. And the next thing you know, he said to me, would you do a speaking engagement for my, for my fellowship group called Extreme Leadership? And I, and I, I said, yes, but I was terrified because believe it or not, I can speak to hundred thousand people easily, but I can't speak to 30 it freaks me out. Or I used to be able to, it used to freak me, it doesn't freak me out anymore, but it freaked me out. So I wasn't really, I thought he was saying to me, you should speak at my next conference. I'm like, oh no, 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 no. But in fact, I did. And I really enjoyed it. I had a great time. And so that led to um, more conferences and more speaking engagements. And then finally, a decision to do a book, which really kind of happened 
a couple of things happened. Number one, um, I, I had already tried to do a book years ago and it didn't work. Uh, and I'm glad it didn't work because the story was nowhere near finished. Um, but then, you know, Twisted stopped playing 2016. And the documentary came out around 2015, 2016. So that took those projects to their end. And I was looking for a new project. So I said, this would be good. So let's, let's go. But we still didn't have a, I didn't have a, I didn't have an angle yet. The angle, the twisted method of reinvention wasn't um, fully formed in my head. That kind of happened as the book was, as we started to do the book. The what was the other that. book you were? You it was that. a book on twisted. It was, but it, but it was, it, this was 30, like right after, right after the band broke up, I was thinking of doing a book called Hair Today, Gone Tomorrow. I think that was the name of the book. Cool and, title. Yeah, and, and, and so what happened was, I, I, my, my cousin at the time was helping me out and, and I couldn't get it together. You know, doing a book is a hard thing, man. It's yeah, really, I'm really sure. tough. Like it's really, it takes a lot of work. Steve Farber really uh, helped focus me on this book terribly because you really need to be focused and if i was writing the book by myself it would have been 19 volumes you know it would have just gone on like the history of the jews or something it would just gone on and on steve was just like enough you know it's like my wife i've heard that enough you know <laughs> um this story is germane this story is not germane you know so he kind of he centered me mm -hmm. to that so he was able to you know he was able to really make the important stuff important that was the key yeah, that was the difference because the stories go on and on and on and on, and there's hundreds of them, but no. you can't put them all in the book. No, you just really well, can't. I'm going to give you a hell of a compliment because <clears throat> I hate acronyms, but you did it so well with Twisted, and you did the book in the with chapters following each letter in the acronym. I just thought that was brilliant. Um, and it changed my mind on acronyms because usually, like I said, I can't stand them. But well, well let me just say this about that. You know, when you do the motivational speaking gig, you get into that world of motivational yes. speaking. Everybody who's in that world writes books. And so the buyers always go, so where's your book? So you don't have a book, right? Say so I needed a book. And so I decided at that point, if my future was going to be in, in motivational speaking, then I needed a book that was a business book, like a real business book, but a book that told the story in a business context. And then the twisted method came to me because there was a book called Grit that uh, was a one word uh, title. And the person's thesis was that grit was the, was the single most uh, dominant reason why people who succeed succeed because they have grit. That was the whole point. And I thought to myself, that that's not true. That's really not true. It's nice to say it, and it's simple to say it, but it's not true. It's not how I did it. So I started thinking about things that that I would describe. How would I describe Twisted? I would say, well, you know, there was uh, we were inspired. You know, we were tenacious. You know, there was a lot of wisdom. I started putting all these words out, and bottom line is the words kind of came on the page, and it was I, I moved it around, and it was. Tenacity, wisdom, inspiration, stability, trust, excellence, and discipline. Bingo, twisted. That's what made it easy to do it. Well, what I'm saying is you're able to put them into chapters and every story, the way you built a book was, uh, I just think it's perfect for a motivational book, uh, part biography. Um, it's also anybody who's who wants to be a musician, right? As far as like how to do it, it just it just flows perfectly with that acronym. Um, but I wanted to, besides that, I wanted to talk about how what I felt fascinating about the book is how your brother, who is a teacher, I don't know what he teaches. What does he teach? Language teacher. He was. Language teacher. Okay. Came up to you and was amazed at your... Um, I don't know if it was your survival instinct or just the fact that you've been through so much, right? The ups and downs, rolling with the punches, right? And and that you probably doing better now than you were. I don't know if this is how you feel about this, better now than you were um, when you're in Twisted. 
oh, I, that's impossible to say. The band has had so many different periods of its existence. Right. Right. You know, the band, I, when people ask me the general conversation about the band is, you know, how would you describe the, the, four, the, the nearly 50 year arc of the band? And I said, well, there was the club days. Yep. That was 1973 to 1982. There was the album video years, 1983 to 1988. Then there was the dark period where we all had straight jobs and we all walked away from it. And that was 1989 to 2001. And then there was the festival years, the 2001 on. And, and, and so we lived these different life's eras in giant chunks of time. The club, the club days were 12 years long and the, and the um, video album era was six years. And then the dormancy was 12 years. And then the return was 14 years. It's a lot, you know, it's a lot. And there's a, there's a lot to unpack. And the conversation with my brother was interesting because I didn't think about all of the stories until he brought them up. The, the roller coaster ride, that the mm -hmm. band took, you know, this crazy mm -hmm. roller coaster ride, or my life took anyway. This highs, highs, lows, lows, and everything in between. So I think, I think um, when he said that to me, it also crystallized certain things in my head about what we've been through, about what we survived, and how lucky we were. Because most most people don't have that. They don't have that kind of success. Uh, they dream about it, but they don't have it. Well, you made a comment, let me see if I get this right, that <clears throat> where you say that it takes more than talent, it's persistence. Um, I mean, that's so true. And during these dark times, at least from what I gather in the book, you still had this persistence, like, okay, you're, you're going to find a way you know, <laughs> to do something new. You know, because you got to change. The world's about change. Um, and you did it. And that, that, that part to me, even though that you call that the dark times, is the most interesting. You mean when I became a stereo salesman and that whole thing, that whole period? It's, it's yep. That's, you know, as a friend, I was like, it made me pissed off. Like, uh, you know, I realize you're very informative about, you're an audiophile, but, you know, JJ deserves better. And then, but the way you took that, you know, you, you were in a dark period and you pulled out of that. You never sort of said, okay, that's it. Twisted Sister's over. You thought about Twisted Sister and how to change it. You became a manager. Then you started bringing Twisted Sister back and then motivational speaker. I think it's quite fascinating. Uh, well, thank you. And whatever I do, I do um, unconsciously. So I, I don't think I sit there and go now. I think, well, I do go now what? I do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, so now what's up? Like, you know, what is now? What does this mean? Um, and, uh, and there are times where I go, is that all? Like there were times where I was working at the cereal store and I was vacuuming the store up at, late at night thinking, this is really how... <laughs> This is really how it's going to go. Like, this yeah. is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. I've asked myself so many of that, those questions at so many different times in my life. You know, when I walked in on the scene where Michael pulled the gun out of Mel, and I thought I was witnessing a murder. I went, so that's, yeah. this is it. You know, this is what I'm going to do. Or yeah. when my, one of my band members got pulled over for, for drunk driving and the, the, and, uh, and the cop arrested him and left me on the highway, freezing cold outside the car, locked the door and left me there in the middle of, winter with nothing but a little sweater on thinking i'm gonna die of exposure i'm thinking so this is this is this is how it's gonna end you know this is how it's going and when the truck was stolen by ex-band members and the equipment was destroyed i went so this is how it's going to end and when the truck years later was blown up by a rival club owner i went this is this gonna how is this how it's gonna end and every time the band was rejected by the record labels over and over again i go this is really how it's gonna end like so i would have these conversations with myself like is this really is this it you know plus you know that you can't discount the two heart operations that i had for atrial fibrillation i can't discount the, the prostate cancer diagnosis yeah you know like is that is that it is that really how it's going to end so uh, I'm more mystified by it. Like I ask myself, like, oh my God, and my divorces sucked too, you know? 
like, oh my God, you know, divorces were bad and having to file for bankruptcy was terrible. Okay, you know, so I'll go back to the word persistence. And you, it was also- Or, t- or tenacity, you know, either- Passion, you know. persistence. To, not everyone has that. Well, you, know? you have it. And I have it, yes. You're teaching it, right, in this book, because it doesn't come naturally to some people. Okay, fair enough. And maybe some people never get it either. Right. You know, it's just not part of who they are. But they you can know, learn. They, well, they can. yes. And hopefully they read the book and they go, I'll soldier on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't have a book to read. So everything was done. Um, it was part of your DNA. A, yeah, it was part of the response mechanism to the problems we had. Yeah. So, yeah. So when you can look back on that and write a book about it, you can also make it more romantically important. You know, I mean, it was important to explain it in the book. I also didn't want to seem overly, um, you know, what I say in the book, I say success is easy. If you don't mind, who gets the credit. I, I don't mind who gets the credit for it. I, if I keep the machine going uh, and I, and all I did was keep the machine going, I'm happy with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it takes a certain amount of uh, wisdom and, and, and tenacity to keep the machine going. And also right. you have to understand too, it's not just keeping the machine going. It's understanding why you got to keep the machine going. You know, and then once you do that, then you have to say, what is the purpose of keeping this machine going? Is there a, is there a larger reason to keep it going? I mean, not, you know, people That's sometimes stay, comes in. Passion. Yeah, but you can also be, you know, you also have to know the right time to get away from something. You know, there are times when the nuclear option comes into play. I've been down that road. I talk about the nuclear option in the book, you know, where the whole thing was blown up and and we all walked away from it. And that was a tough gig because that was the divorce. That was the bankruptcy. That was the whole that was the whole thing. And and I had run out of ideas at that point. The only idea I had was to blow it up. I blew it up. Hmm. And then I had to recover from it, you know, but like I get into I explain proactive and reactive chaos in people's lives that these are all business terms that I didn't learn in school because I was a high school dropout. So I didn't learn these techniques uh, in any other way, but living them. So when I describe these techniques to people, they go, wow, wow. To get that in a book. I go, no, man, I got it in life. <laughs> you know, yeah. I got my ass kicked in life and I learned. Yeah. So that's really, that's what makes the book credible. So we went through this shit. Right. You also called, let me see if I got this term right, the music business, notoriously savage. Now, is it any really any different than any other business, right? I mean, um, you could say the entertainment business too, but you specifically said the music business. The music business is full of, of assholes. And it used to be full of, I mean, the record company executives were just as bad if not worse than the musicians, you know, narcissistic pricks who, who had a power, who had issues of power and basically, uh, and lorded over your career because they could. Uh, and these guys were all frustrated sexually and they would just, you know, abuse their help. And, and not to mention the fact that, that, um, that, uh, that the slavery systems of the contracts were, were, were notorious. Once you learn that, once you learn that that's the game, um, then you have to figure out how you're going to function within that game. But it's a horrible game. You know, the, it, it's indentured servitude. Contracts are some of the most onerous things in the world. I never, I didn't go into depth as to how record labels legally rob you, but they're pretty fucked up. I mean, it's, it's legal robbery. And, um, you know, I can sit back and be bemused by it and laugh about it because we've learned how to use the system and beat it. But then look how long we had to stay together to learn those lessons. Most people don't. Most people, what are these stories are mostly a hard up stories. Band makes it, band, a musician, an artist suffers. They make it, they make a lot of money and then drugs, alcohol just destroy their life and their manager robs them and then they're left with nothing. And then they go into rehab and either they die or they somehow come back. And that's not what the twisted story was. Uh, I was never going to be so stupid as to not know why things sucked. You know, there's three kinds of people in the world. Let me be clear about this. There's the people who make it happen, the people who watch it happen and the people who go, what happened? And I was never going to be the person to go, what happened? I was going to make it happen or watch it happen, but I'm never going to go, what happened? Mm. And so I know the reason why everything happened. And it wasn't because we weren't paying attention. We were paying attention. 
and, and learning the entire scope of the politics of the record industry and their contracts is not something the average musician does. You just don't. So you hope you have a manager that does it for you and you have to worry about it, man. You could just like play the music, man. You know, but that wasn't my thing. Right. Every time I read a um, book that uh, talks about music history, um, especially the 60s, uh, 70s, um, I don't know why I should be shocked by some of the things that went on, but it was more mobbed up and uh, like Tommy James biography. And, Great book. And this this tale you told about um, <laughs> a mobbed up guy threatening you was wow that was crazy and the fact that it happened in Jimi hendrix's old studio the guy yeah. who represents peace and love just really... yeah it was pretty freaky it was yeah. actually it was freaky and and then the fact that we had to get somebody else who was in the in that sort of business to to get me out right. of it right um you know but by that point we had already been in the business for so long we had already dealt with that end of the business because we don't forget we weren't a record we weren't a recording band yet so we'd, we'd yet to be screwed by the legal arm of the ripoff mm -hmm. business you know we were just dealing with the underbelly of of the club scene but the band was so popular that we were able to not be victimized by it right but the we rationale were, was so crazy like for instance you know, you said you'd give me this money if you put a record out. Well, we didn't put a record out. And then he sh shows a promotional record, which just because you're in New York somehow got sold at Crazy Eddie or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he says, but you have. So the rationale was kind of so. It, it was it was it was bitterly ironic, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. It was bitterly, here's a band with no record deal. So what we did was decided to make our we decided to release our own record, and now I'm being accused of having a record deal, and I gotta pay all this money, or now That's I'm I finally make it. Yeah, it's fucked up. It's hundred percent right. And, and, he, and for some reason it happened to be selling at like a crazy eddy or a local New York store only because you're a New York band. And, and the guys who pressed it thought they were doing me a favor. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it is ironic, isn't it? It is ironic. Yeah. It, it seems like the uh, how the business entertainment business sometimes survived back then and didn't collapse on itself is amazing. Well, the business made a lot of money for a lot of people and musicians yeah. were the last people to get paid. So I want to talk about the, you know, goldmine readers know a lot about your passions. Um, you talk a lot about how you grew up and because you write a column about the Beatles and the British invasion. So you talk a lot about that time, but there is some stuff in the seventies that you didn't talk about. Um, I like how, when you were coming up with a band name, the lost six, was that your the first band? Uh, well, yeah, technically speaking, that's a great name. The, the first band was, yeah, thanks, thanks for reminding me. The very, very, very first band was put together on November 5th, 1965. And I was in eighth grade. So why do I know that date? Because that was the date of the New York blackout. So we uh, all met at this yeah. guy's apartment on Amsterdam Avenue and 101st Street. It was this Puerto Rican brothers, the Fernandez brothers. And one of them played bass and one of them played trumpet in the school orchestra. And we went up to their apartment on Amsterdam Avenue and we, it was me, the two brothers and three other guys and a, a drummer, I guess, a singer and someone else. And we, we rehearsed two or three songs and we left the apartment. Yeah, here we are 13 years old. We walk over to Columbus Avenue. We're hanging out on 95th Street in Columbus Avenue. And all of a sudden, you, we look down the street and the lights went out. The whole city went black, just bang. Like you just saw the lights go bing, 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 bing. bing. And it was that giant blackout of 65. So the, we're roaming around the neighborhood. It was dark out, obviously. It's now six in the evening, November 5th. And we, were, we didn't have a name for the band. So we decided, why don't we call ourselves the Lost Six? Because like we're walking around, you know, kind of lost in the neighborhood. So that was the Lost Six. And the Lost Six probably rehearsed one more time and never did it again, which then led to the next band, 
And the next band was me, the singer named Bing Gong, who could have been the singer for The Lost Six. He was a Chinese kid from the projects across the street from me. Bing, who incidentally was also the first person I know who died of AIDS, sadly enough. Great kid. And, um, and uh, this drummer named Paul Herman. So my name was John. So it was me and Bing and Paul. And we then called our band John, Paul and Bingo. And uh, we proceeded to play a talent show in which we did two songs, uh, like a Rolling Stone and I Couldn't Get High by the Fugs, which got us thrown off the stage because we're a bunch of 13 year old kids who should not be singing a song called I Couldn't Get High. Yeah. So that band, so that band, John, Paul and Bingo lasted exactly one show. Okay. And that was that band. And then we called ourselves the Prophets and the Druids and all these other stupid names. And one of the kids in my junior high school said, we can go down to the village and, and play in the village in a club. And whoa, whoa. So we went to the Cafe Wa, mm. which is still there. It's where Jimi Hendrix was signed by Chaz Chandler right. on, uh, on McDougall and Third. So we went to the Cafe Wa and I think we played a show. We played one set. I don't know. We knew it was five or six songs. And, and, and you know, we were like 13 and nothing happened but then the next week the um the drummer larry chernoff said to me we can go to the night owl cafe and we can play the night owl the night owl was around the corner from the cafe wall the night owl had just lost the love and spoonful who had mm, just right the love and spoonful had just finished their residency there and they mm -hmm. got signed by kama sutra or buddha whatever signed them uh, um, as a matter of fact, it was Charles Koppelman and Don Rubin, I believe, signed them. Mm. So um, the Blues Magoos now were the new headliners. Yeah. And it was the Blues Magoos, the Clefts of Lavender Hill and the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra. So anyway, we're 13 years old. We show up at the club and um, we knock on the door. It's a Saturday morning. And then this guy named Tommy opens the door. He goes, what do you kids want? We go, we want to come and play on the gear. Meanwhile, we had never played on any gear that was bigger than an amplifier that maybe was this big. So I wouldn't know what it was like to play through gear. But on the stage of the Night Owl was the Blues Magoos stage gear. And it was real stuff. It was Beatles, Super Beatle amps and Vox Essex amps. And, oh, it was real. And we said, we know three songs. We know Dedicated Follower Fashion by the Kinks, The Last Time by the Rolling Stones, and Wipeout by the Safaris. And we said, can we play? And the guy goes, if you clean up the whole bar, you can play. So, you know, schmucky kids, we clean up the whole bar and the guy gets us on stage and we go and we play and we're halfway through the last time and the Blues Magoos, now remember we're 13, right? So the Blues Magoos were 17. They came in, they came in and saw us on the stage playing through their gear and they were not happy. And they came up on stage and Pepe looked at me and he goes, get the fuck off of my gear. And I was like, ah. so we all walked off stage and we cowered in a booth and watched them as they rehearsed their new single, which was Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. So we watched them write it. And I will never forget the stage. I'll never forget the stage. It was in the middle of the afternoon. I'll never forget the, I'll never forget that. So you do know that I, I'm, did I ever tell you the story that I met that I, that I interviewed Pepe 30 years later? I was oh, just going to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I did tell you, right. Yeah. So I, I interviewed him 30 years later and I, and I said, you know, we met once before and he said, really, how could that be? You know, cause Twisted was super famous. And I said, well, you know, back in 1965, I said, let me ask you a question, Pepe. You remember your stage set at the night cafe? He goes, yeah. I said, you remember that stage set? You had your drummer, Jeff was playing on the floor. He goes, right. And I said, and the bass player Lion was a Thunderbird bass amp next to him. He goes, yeah. I said, and Mike Esposito, the guitar player, had a Vox, you know, Super Beetle. I was like, yeah. And you were next to him and you had a Vox Desk amplifier and you played through a Fender Telecaster with a Vox treble booster. And you also had a purple torpedo with the name Blues Magoos and yellow stencil on it. He goes, why would you know any of that? And I said, because you threw me off the fucking stage when I was 13 years old. And of course, now I'm 6'6", six, six wearing heels, and he's like 5'8". And he's like, dude, I'm really sorry, man. I'm really, really sorry. I, didn't, I was having a bad day. I have no recollection of ever doing it. It's fun. Anyway, Pepe and I are friends. We talk all the time. He's, he's a lot of fun. And I love the story in the book about Wicked Lester, who many know will be go on to become Kiss. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There's a great part where Gene, I guess, is yelling at Ace. 
Right? Yeah, well, he goes, yeah, he waves his finger in his face. And so, you said, I would never <laughs> have survived this man. No. Yeah, treat it like that. Yeah, I never would have survived it. So, um, so uh, they, they they finished playing their set at the on the loft, and they were awesome. It was wow. I thought Fantastic. they were better than the New York Dolls. Didn't oh, well, they were yeah, not even close. They actually could play. <laughs> dolls couldn't fucking play. Dolls, if the dolls didn't look like like women, they couldn't have gotten a gig. They're like the worst band on the planet. You know, there's a terrible band that looked good. They sounded good on vinyl. That series that Mick Jagger did the pretend. If you if you want to say that, that's fine. That's, listen, oh, okay. David Johansson has said they sucked. Uh, when the lead singer of your band tells you you suck, I'm not going to argue with the guy. All right, I will not. I saw the Dolls, you know, at CBGBs about ten years ago when they had different players in it. Yeah, they had Steve Conti. They had a great drummer. They were really good. That's because they had guys who could play. I mean, you need guys to play. Yeah. Guys in the the guys in the Dolls were known musicians in New York, right. and they were known bad musicians in New York. So that nobody took it seriously. At least the here's the thing: the glam thing came in like 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 crazy. September '72, the glam thing just kind of just exploded right. and the dolls were just at the right place at the right time with the right connections and wound up at the mercer art center meanwhile you know i was coming out of my grateful dead allman brothers shtick and and um but the dolls were rehearsing in the same place we were rehearsing which was a place called talent recon which most people don't even remember existing talent recon was a rehearsal studio on eighth avenue in the 50s and it was run by a guy named satan because he looked just like the devil he used to sit at this big desk and had like the beard and the thing and he was known as satan so the dolls used to rehearse down the hallway on this one floor and we used to rehearse with these other various bands of mine and so i'd see them and i'd hear occasionally this fucked up band rehearsing you know and and then, but then that fucked up band wound up playing at the Mercer Arts Center. So my friend, Janie um, Rabb, who uh, was my high school buddy who went to high school with me and Eddie Ojeda, her and her girlfriend, Jennifer, knew Bill and Syl from the Dolls and lived with them a year earlier in England. So she called me and she says, you know, Bill and uh, Syl, Bill had died. Billy Mercy had died. So she said, you know, the band that Billy was in, uh, is now the dolls and they're playing at the Mercer Art Center tonight. You should come and see them. They're really great. I'm thinking, well, this is like Bowie's. I had just had my hair cut and, and dyed. I said, well, these are my people. You know, this is my new thing. This is not the Grateful Dead. You know, this is, this is, you know, glam rock. You know? So I go down there and I'm sitting there in shock going, this is how I, this is how I, this is how I, I felt about it. I thought, you know what? I've just experienced four years of the Fillmore East in which I saw the dead, Hendrix, Jeff Beck, Rod Stewart, Jethro Tell, 10 years after, the nice family, Prokhor Haram, Traffic, Spooky Tooth, Free, you name it. I've seen, uh, you know, a Zeppelin, uh, Iron Butterfly, Can Heat, mm -hmm. Chicago, week after week after week of uh, Leon Russell, Mad Dogs and Englishman, Joe Cocker, week after week of excellence. Four years of excellence, only to have to listen to this shit band who showed that the de-evolution, the devolution of society was knocking on our door. And I thought to myself, this is what we have to show for this shit after all these years. Like, that was my feeling. So I'm not going to have a retro sensation about this and have people go, man, you know, the dolls are fucking legendary, man. You know what? Everyone's entitled to their damn opinion. You know, people think everybody sucks. Think Twisted Sister sucks? Fine. Think Grateful Dead suck? Fine. My wife doesn't like the Beatles. She can't stand them. You know? Everyone has a right to their opinion. Right. If I tell you that I went to see the dolls expecting to see greatness and instead I heard this band that could barely play and a singer who can't sing on key then i wasn't impressed and i said those exact words to a record company executive the first night i saw the dolls as i walked out of the mercer art center a guy in a suit came up to me and said hey man apparently he came to see the dolls because of their reputation he said what do you think of the band and my exact quote was they look amazing if they ever learn how to play maybe they'll have some value that was my exact words now was i talking of like uh, was I talking like a 20-year-old guy talking about another 20-year-old band? You know, because, you know, you suck, you suck, you suck. You, you know, was I? Yeah, maybe. 
So what? I mean, so what? Uh, I love the Ramones. You know, the, what, what's the difference in the Dolls and the Ramones? The Ramones, they were good. The, the Ramones had a reason to be. They had a vision. You know, Kiss, they had a vision. Right. Yeah, they had a real vision. I mean, my God, when you heard those Wicked Lesser songs, Kissified, there was a vision there. Mm -hmm. You know, you listen to Sex Pistols and The Clash. There's a vision there. You understand the reasons why the dolls never had that. Sorry. Well, you know, there's an interesting thing. That was the night that Bowie was there, right? Bowie was, mm -hmm. you have a photograph. He was there. I was there every night. I was there every week. Bowie yeah. was there. The the well, day, I think it was the day after I saw him at Carnegie Hall. Well, the, the uh, this art center gig you're talking about, uh, Mercer. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing about it, it was sort of romanticized in this in that TV show vinyl that was produced by Mick Jagger in that Bullshit. show they made the dolls look like the greatest band ever people had rushed the stage there was a big crowd which never happened right wait wait so yes so let me be clear about that that show right You're I'm watching dead. that show and I'm going god the band sounds amazing do you know why the band sounds amazing because they're not playing on it. <laughs> Johnny Gale is playing all the guitar parts. You know who Johnny Gale is? Johnny Gale no, is one of the greatest guitar players in New York. He is, I used to manage him. Hmm. He's a blues player. He's phenomenal. So someone told me that his name is Neil Posner. And he said, someone said, Neil, I said, man, I said, that's the greatest dolls recording I ever heard. And someone said, that's the dolls. I called Neil. As I heard he played it, he goes, yeah, I did all the guitar parts and played the bass. That's why it sounded good. Mm. So number one, they sounded great because they weren't playing on it, right? That's number one. Number two, all those people writing and singing, on, I call bullshit on that. Never yeah. happened. Because you, it was a clean kind of auditorium, right? Plastic no, it was like a big room. It was a big room. Yeah. And yeah. in the series, it had like trash on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, well, but it was in a, it was like a, it was a, it was a college building. Yeah, there was no junkies on the street. It was like when you walked out of the room, there was like, uh, you know, like um, English will be tomorrow in class three hundred one. You know, on the third right. floor, it was just it was a college dorm building. Interesting how yeah. history is, you know, glamorized. Yeah, it's so it was total bullshit. Now, I will say this, it, uh, I will give them one redeeming statement. So, you know, our documentary was done by Andrew Horn. Mm -hmm. Andrew Horn at the time in 1972 was a promoter. And he promoted the dolls at the Fillmore East when it was called the new Fillmore East. Mm -hmm. And it was December of 72. So in other words, I'd seen the dolls in September and October. In December, they played the Fillmore. It was the dolls, Eric and the Magic Tramps and Teenage Lust. And I went to that show. And they were really good. Mm. Oh, my God. There was a riot that night. People rushed the stage. And I sat there and I went, okay. All right. I get it. They're really good. But then I saw them about 10 times after it. And they were terrible. And also, Arthur Kane couldn't play anymore. So, you know, they propped him up on stage, unplugged. Mm. You know about this? No. He used to be propped up on the stage, unplugged. So the bass player was Peter Jordan behind the stage when Arthur couldn't play. So, you know, they played the Hamptons when we were in the Hamptons. That was sad. That was truly, they were truly sad that night. Um, that after they played a happy hour on the beach, on Hot Dog Beach. You imagine the New York Dolls showing up in hot pants, playing a happy hour for a bunch of freaking drunk Italian and Irish kids. All they want to hear is smoke on the water. The reason why they tolerated Twisted Sisters is because we played cover material. Even though we looked the way we looked, you know, you could come and see us that night. You would be playing the, you know, the, the rock hits of the day, Deep Purple, whatever. Bowie, Lou Reed, Mott. Um, but the Dolls came out in a happy hour and played this little stage that was catacornered in the bar called Hot Dog Beach. It was sad. It 
Well, instead of calling the really twisted sister glam rock, you went one step further. You called it a transvestite group. Well, it was a transvestite okay. rock band. Yeah, it was. That's what the whole point was. It was like look like women play like men talk like motherfuckers. That was the. <laughs> or no, look like women talk like men play like motherfuckers. That was the band's business model. Um, but yeah, we were. I mean, female. Yeah, it was female. Like you know, Mel looked gorgeous. The drummer, you know, he looked like Tina Turner. You know, I mean, I mean, the guys at Cornell Gunther from the Coasters was gay. Tried to pick Mel up at our first gig. We opened for the Coasters the first weekend. We opened for Little Anthony and the Imperials the second weekend. Talk about how many years ago this was. Well, <clears throat> it's ironic because it um, kind of took you giving up drugs to get serious, right? About becoming a rock musician. Yeah, I said to my mom, the good news is, mom, I'm not doing drugs anymore. But the bad news is I've joined a transvestite rock band. <laughs> Oops. Can you go well, back to drugs just once, please? Yeah. There's a picture of you in the book holding up a beer can. You said there's water in that. And I can remember seeing you when I was 15. I snuck in a club. I remember you guys were drinking. So that was water in that. Well, we never drank it. <laughs> like somebody would hand me something. I'd put it up to my nose because I, I always hated the taste of alcohol. I've had five beers in my entire life, you know, amongst the worst beverage ever created by man, which tastes like carbonated <laughs> piss water. But that's just my own view of beer. You know, I'm sure people love beer. I know people love beer. People love beer. Beer companies love people who love beer. I, however, never understood ever to this day, do not understand the taste of alcohol. Well, that was part of your discipline part where you said that one of the rules of the band was no drinking or drugging during working hours. Yeah right yeah that was smart and we worked all the time so there was when you're no talking about the dolls they were probably fucked up whenever and so was aerosmith and so was motley and probably everybody else i can't speak to these other bands i really can't Which, when you're like that as a musician usually the performance sucks you know yes and we were and, too obsessive to to want to suck right when you saw twist the sister in the clubs you were like Wow, they sound as good as Judas Priest. Yes, that's what always people always said. Or we sounded better. But then again, to be fair, all those bands in the bars back in those days, the real big ones, Zebra, Rat Race, Choir, yeah. we all sounded better than the artists we were copying. That's why people came to see us. The reason, you know, you, in, by 77, nobody wanted to see Led Zeppelin anymore because they were pretty terrible live. You'd rather see Zebra play Zeppelin. We, we had tickets once to give away for Zeppelin 77 at the Garden. I couldn't give tickets away. Nobody wanted to go. Because the reputation had fallen so far, you know, people really. Bad, I would have loved to have taken that ticket. Yeah, well, I did. I took it because nobody else wanted to go. So I went. <laughs> fuck, I went to see him, and they sucked, you know. But I sat there and for three hours watched John Bonham play drums because you can do that with John Bonham. Well, wait, you saw them in the beginning, and you yeah, I saw them in '69. I saw them in '69. I saw them in '70. I saw them in '70. The opposite, I right? You thought they were brilliant. <sighs> Greatest. But you know, when you in saw him later, wait, wait. to be fair, in 69, Zeppelin was ridiculous. Rolling Stones were ridiculous in 69. Ridiculous. But then during the 70s, a lot of had a lot of those performances that were lukewarm had to do with drugs. They were on drugs and they couldn't perform as well. I think that's well, that's what I think happened. I think drugs yeah. took a serious toll on a lot of bands. Then Aerosmith, of course, fell apart. Aerosmith couldn't get a job as Aerosmith. You know, they changed their name to the Mystery Band. You know that, right? Mm. You don't know about that? Yeah. So in 1978, 79, Aerosmith, uh, Joe Perry left, and the band was worthless. So they couldn't get jobs. So they get, were booked under the name the Mystery Band, and they Seriously? played the Long Island bar scene. Yeah. And I went to see them. Mm. And they were pretty bad. Because I saw them when they got back together again without Joe Perry. And um, uh, which is not a bad, they put out an album that I didn't think was too bad, but that's neither here nor there. Well, yeah, but by 1980, <laughs> I don't know what year it was. When I finally saw Aerosmith back in full, full swing, they were great. And I'm a huge Aerosmith fan. Mm -hmm. I mean, Eddie O'Jane and I went to see Aerosmith when they were fucked up on heroin at the garden and we couldn't understand a goddamn word that Steven Tyler was singing. I mean, well, you know, we, we went to see them in 75 because mm -hmm. we had, you know, Twisted was already covering Aerosmith songs. Mm 
Right. Yes, you know, so we were covering toys in the attic, I think, you know, and uh, and 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 all we heard was, oh, 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 and he goes, I think he's singing toys in the attic. You know, they were terrible, but then they got really good. You know, like I'm great. I'm so glad for them. You know, they they learned their lesson and they came back yeah. better than ever. Good for them. Now. I've learned things from reading this book and other people learn things. Not just, I don't think you have to be a musician or, you know, in a band. Um, you could be anybody, any walk of life and, and anybody who knows anything about human behavior, if you read this book, will help them. Question is, what have you learned or have you learned anything from writing the book? Yeah, yeah. I've learned that my capacity to overcome things is pretty high. And although it's obvious by reading the book that it's that way, it it's, wasn't obvious to me. So after really, you know, as, as my brother pointed out in the book, you know, you went through these whole things. Right. You know, and, you keep, and, and while they were happening, I didn't know they were happening at the time they were happening. But my response to the crises was always interesting to me. So what's happened is that I've had enough success in confronting challenges in my life that I'm confident that I can approach almost anything. Right. It doesn't mean that those crises are not horrible to hear or to experience. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I quote Joe Lewis in the book and I say, Joe Lewis has a quote, which is when you get knocked down in the ring, you can't get up so fast and nobody doesn't know you got knocked down. So mm -hmm. take the damn 10 count, you know, take some time to deal with this shit and, and put it in perspective. It sounds like a cliche, but you know, we're, we are, you and me, we're all in the entertainment business. It's a, what have you done for me lately world? We mm -hmm. hear shit all day long. We put up with stuff all day long and, and, you know, you have to learn how to deal and young people don't, you know, what gets me crazy about these shows like America's Got Talent and The Voice, this is what really gets me crazy. So the kid wins, male or female, whatever, they win, you know, and they look in the camera and they hold the award, you know, and they just got a $100,000 record deal for whatever the fuck that is, because it's a waste of time anyway, because they're going to get ripped off, but it doesn't matter. And they say things like, I don't want to thank my fans for sticking with me for 15 weeks. And I have to just fall off my chair. 15 weeks are you kidding me are you kidding me it took years it takes years 15 weeks my instagram following is so amazing so i don't know how you process that shit i don't know what the instant gratification of instagram and 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 facebook and all that does to your skews your head because mm -hmm. we did not have that and i'm glad we didn't have that it made us a real band mm -hmm. yeah you're right about this generation it's uh not to sound like, you know, my father, yeah. but. <laughs> but we sound like our father. Yeah, yeah. We, we can't help like it. Father. It's, you know, you have to stop yourself every once in a while. You know, 20-year-old kid comes to me and asks me for advice. The first thing I want to say to him, you're an idiot. If you have to ask me for advice, you're in the wrong business. I didn't ask anybody for advice when I was 20. I figured that shit out. You but if you're asking, yeah, excuse me? You just did it. Yeah, I did it. Well, we did it. You know, you, and, you, you no, figured but I it mean, out. You just, you're like, I'm yeah. going to do this. I'm. Just gonna I'm gonna do figure it. it out. Yeah, and so yeah. so the so the rules are different today. It's a big deal. So follow the rules that are today. Mm -hmm. You know the rules that apply to me are not the rules that apply to you. The the determination is the same. Mm -hmm. The desire to succeed is the same. The rules are a little different. You know, I didn't ask a seventy year old person for advice when I was twenty. I, the fuck, I, I could care less with seventy. Although I do say in the book that the first time I asked anybody for advice was Tommy James from Tommy James and the Shondells. And I asked him, this was in 1976. And it was the first time I asked anybody for advice. And I remember we were playing a corner bar in Long Island called the 1890s in Baldwin. So here's Tommy James headlining, you know, a guy who was super famous in the 60s. He probably hates the fact he's playing a corner bar somewhere in Long Island. You know, to him, this has got to suck. And he has some band called Twisted Sister, you know, who doesn't know who the hell they are. And uh, we finished our opening set and we're walking down this little staircase and I passed Tommy James and I look at him. I said, what advice can you give a, a, a young musician? And he looked at me and he went, okay, 
I'll tell you. He said, you meet the same people on the way up as you do on the way down. So treat people with respect mm. all the time because you never know. And I took that to heart. And he, he does that. James, yeah. if you talk to him. Yeah. If you've talked to him back then or now, that's what I hear. But anyway. Well, if I ever get a chance to talk to him, I'll remind him he told me that. Because <laughs> he that was a, that was a, that was general advice, but it was very good advice. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, JJ, for this. Uh, we almost went an hour. Yeah. Listen, thank man, you know, I, you know I, I really appreciate Goldmine a lot. I, I love it. I love the fact that you gave me a form to write about. And that, um, and you appreciate my passion for whatever. You realize this is the, maybe the first talk where we haven't mentioned the Beatles. I don't think you. <laughs> the Beatles were not brought up during this whole. Uh, well, I will say that the one piece of advice I give to bands is, you know, before you're the Beatles, you better be better than the band next door. You know, so it's nice next to set your sights at that level, but you know, keep your sights at a rational level. Uh, as you pick off the bands along the way, because you know you kind of like gotta take them out as you as you climb up that ladder. But um, Pat, I gotta run, man. Hey, right, man. Thanks. All right, it was great talking to you. I'll talk, I'll to, talk you to you soon. Bye, bye. Thanks, JJ French, for being on the Goldmine Podcast once again. Been on it a few times, and this time it was about your book, Twisted Business, of course, which can be found in the Goldmine Store shop.goldminemag.com also go to goldminemag.com for exclusive content and don't forget to buy the print edition on barnes and noble and books a million newsstands so this is pat prince signing off for the goldmine podcast a proud member of the pantheon podcast group we'll see you next time bye now it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football fantasypoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points fantasypoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play whether you play fantasy football daily fantasy sports or do a little bit of everything fantasy points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.